I might begin by telling you, young people, about the way bishops dress. This is what is known as a choir dress. It is used formally in churches. Then we have another dress, which is really for social purposes, the black cassock and a long, a long scarlet, purple, red garment called a ferriola that reaches all the way to the knees. I was once giving a lecture in Cleveland and I arrived just a short time before the lecture and I had nothing to eat so I asked the members of the committee if they would go with me to the dining room while I had a glass of milk and some graham crackers and I was dressed in this black cassock and long ferriola. The waitress in the early flirties took the orders of the men that were with me and then she looked at me and she said, well, Cock Robin, what will you have? <laughs> now, this is not the Cock Robin dress, but let me tell you about this. This is called a rochet, R-O-C-H-E-T, rochet. It is, you see, linen down to the waist and then lace to the knees. I was in the Beverly Wiltshire Hotel in Los Angeles a short time ago, and I went up to my room at night, and I found my pajamas on one bed and the rochet on the other. <laughs> I know, it takes a little time to get that, but you do. Now, a word to you young people. It is very hard for you to realize that your parents lived in a day when no bicycle needed to be locked. When doors were left unlocked at night. When anyone could walk the streets of a large city without being mugged or attacked, those were days of peace. You have never seen them. It probably is hard for you to realize that that's the way America once was. Now. How did this change come about? Why suddenly have we had so much dishonesty? Let me tell you this story about dishonesty. I was in one of the big hotels of this country. The manager told me that he found the cashier stealing money. This woman had a very wide pocket in her skirt and she would reach in the drawer and take bills and stick them in. And they saw her and one day they caught her in the act and discharged her. The union said to her, you may not discharge her. If you discharge her, we will call a strike on the hotel and call everyone out of the hotel. 
The litigation went on for about three months. The union won. They had to take the girl back. Do you know what their argument was? They said to the hotel manager, did you ever tell that girl it was wrong to steal? No, tell said, no, we never told her it was wrong to steal. Well, then how would she know? See how much the world has changed? Now, what made it change? I think maybe we can pinpoint a date. 8.15 in the morning, the 6th of August, 1945. Can any of you recall what happened on that date? It's history. Before you were born, many of you. Yes, what was it? Which? The war? No. It was the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima in Japan. When we flew an American plane over this Japanese city and dropped the atomic bomb on it, we blotted out boundaries. There was no longer a boundary between the civilian and the military, between the helper and the helped, between the wounded and the nurse and the doctor, between the living and the dead, for even the living who escaped the bomb were already half dead. So we broke down boundaries and limits and from that time on, the world has said, we want no one limiting me. So that you people heard the song, you've sung it yourselves, I gotta be me, I gotta be free. You want no restraint, no boundaries, no limits. I have to do what I want to do. Now let's analyze that for a moment. Is that happiness? I gotta be me? I've got to have my own identity? Are any of you on a basketball or football team? You can't be yourself, you gotta live for a team. The coach of the Oakland Raiders, Coach Madden, told me, he said, what's happening to our Catholic schools? He said, I have boys from Catholic colleges coming to my football team and they say, I got to do my thing. How am I ever going to have a football team? Everybody has to do his thing. A team means doing the other person's thing. But we want no limits, no boundaries. There was a French play that was written, well, in your lifetime by Sartre, in which there are three men in hell, and each of them talks about his pains, his aches, his protests, his worries, his ego, his identity, and the others are not listening. When the curtain goes down, the last line of the play is, my neighbor is hell. Why is the neighbor hell? Because he stands in my way. I can't do what I want to do. 
God is hell. Parents are hell. Church is hell. Why? Because they limit me. So now we're living in a world of just doing your thing without regard for law. Just suppose now, to get very practical, just suppose your parents never gave you pot training. Think it out. You gotta do your thing. <laughs> Two things would happen. Today, you would hate your parents for never having trained you, and secondly, you would hate yourself. So you are what you are today simply because your parents laid hold of you and said, You're go we're going to train you. They didn't allow you to do your thing. Now if I've made myself clear up to this point, you're living in an age where freedom is described as license, the right to do whatever you please. But that's chaos. If everyone did what he drove a car as he pleased, we'd have disorder in the streets. Certainly you can do whatever you please. You can stuff your Aunt Maisie's mattress with old razor blades. You can turn a machine gun on your neighbor's chickens. Then freedom becomes just a, a physical power. Then the one who is most free is the one who is most strong. So the world has changed. We used to have laws. We had obedience. We had discipline. Today, no boundaries, no limits. And you're not happy that way. Now, there isn't a boy here, because you are more interested in games than the girls are. But when you play games, and it's true of the girls in a limited way, you have boundaries, you have limits. You've got foul lines on a basketball court. You play baseball? You've got lines running into the outfield. You play football, limits, boundaries. You couldn't have fun if someone, for example, was picked up the football and ran outside of the field. You say, no, you can't do that. We got limits. Well, why don't you respect it in other things? If that's the way you want it in games, why don't you want it that way in life? Then we're happy. Now, what is the one thing in this free world, thanks to the press and television, that is the major interest of the young. It's sex. So let's talk about it. Today, sex has become almost mental. Every advertisement has to use it so that you are inclined always to think about it. What is it, really? Well, the reason you want to know about it is because it's a mystery. What is a mystery? Well, a mystery is a sacrament. As a matter of fact, 
The Greek word mysterion is the Latin word sacrament and the English sacramentum and the English word sacrament. Now what is a sacrament? And then we'll understand sex. Every sacrament or every mystery has two elements. First, physical. Secondly, spiritual. Something that is visible, something that is invisible. Take, for example, baptism. What is the physical side of baptism? Water. What is the invisible side of baptism? The cleansing of the soul to make us children of God. A word is a sacrament because there's something audible and then there's something invisible about it, namely the meaning of the word. Take, for example, a pun. I don't know whether I can think of one at the moment, but... Oh, yes, here's one. A little girl was once asked, what are you going to do when you get as big as your mother? And the little girl said, diet. <laughs> now, you see, you laughed at that. Now, why did you laugh at that? If, if for example, a horse heard that joke, the, the horse wouldn't give a horse laugh. Why do you laugh? Because in addition to hearing the sound that a horse would also hear, you got meaning out of it. You got purpose. The Eucharist is a sacrament, a mystery. Something you can see, bread. Something invisible, the presence of Christ. Sex is a mystery. There is something physical about it. Everyone is either male or female. It's that simple, period. Not at all complicated. What is the invisible side of sex? What is the mystery? It's the mystery of love. And it stands for something spiritual. First of all, sex stands for God's creative power given to people. So he gives the creative power to a husband and wife. Instead of directly creating us, he says to a father and mother, I will let you share my creative power and you will give life this is the spiritual side of marriage and of sex but it also stands for something else when you girls and boys get older someday you'll hear come to the altar you'll be married and there will be a reading from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this is what you will be told. Every bride stands for the church. Every groom stands for Christ. Think of it. God intended that in marriage, 
The husband stands for Christ. The bride stands for the church. Does that mean that the, that the man is the head of the woman in the sense of domination? No. The man is the head of the woman in the sense of sacrifice. So as Christ gave himself up for his spouse, his bride, which is the church, so the husband sacrifices himself for the wife. Now that's the spiritual side of marriage and of sex. It therefore refers to love, human love between husband and wife, the love for God, the love for the church. One of the reasons why it is very difficult for parents ever to teach you the complete mystery of sex is this. They find it very hard, to, they can communicate the physical side, that's nothing. But to communicate to you the mystery, the deep profound love that is involved, that is something that is almost impossible to describe. The poet said, would that I could utter the thoughts that arise in me when there was love in his heart. And therefore there will always be a difficulty in the way of explaining to you the mystery. Now this is what it is. It's God's gift, his creative power, and it's not to be used until God gives the power. Now, for example, where's my Lieutenant Fitzgerald? He's around here someplace. Well, now, Lieutenant Fitzgerald has been with me every day since I've been here. Suppose I took his uniform and put it on. Well, first of all, it wouldn't fit me. But suppose it fit me, fitted me. Well, I would then go out in the street in his uniform and begin directing traffic. I would have no authority to direct traffic, even though I was wearing the uniform. I have to be empowered by civil authority to wear that uniform and direct traffic. And so you have to be empowered to use this mystery. You cannot use the oven by yourself. We're in school, see, that's change of classes. So I'll change my subject now and give you another idea <laughs> to keep you interested. The new idea to which we pass is the difference in which, the difference of love in a young man and in a love young woman. Now I hope I can impress you boys and you girls with this difference. It'll say particularly to you girls, there's a world of difference in which a man loves a woman and a woman loves a man. A world of difference. A boy can love a part of a woman. A woman can love only the whole man. Now that is why, my dear girls, that the boys will talk about your legs. They can love a part of you. They can love a dimple, but then they have to marry a woman. 
Do you ever talk about boys' legs? <laughs> never. You never mention boys' legs. Why? Simply because you're not built that way. Boys different. That's the reason you got to watch the boys. Don't think they love you simply because they love a part of you. But you girls, you're slow to love. And the boys will say, oh, you're cold. You're not cold, you're wise. That's what it is. You can't love until you give yourself totally and completely. So you wait. Therefore, do not rush into marriage. Take your time. Wait and see whether the man is capable of sacrifice or not. And then the man, too, if he spoils you in any way, will not have the same love afterwards as before. There's an interesting story in the scripture, and that is always the place to go for wisdom in understanding human actions. Amnon was in love with a young woman in David's palace, Tamar. And Amnon one day pretended he was sick. And he asked Amnon to bring him some cakes. Amnon brought the cakes. And, I mean, uh, Tamar brought the cakes. Then Ammon assaulted Tamar. And then he said to her, Now get out. Then he called the servants. Lock the door. Send her away. And scripture says, The hate with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. In other words, he knew he was guilty. He had spoiled something. He had plucked a young blossom. And he projected the guilt to her as if she herself were guilty. A young girl told me once that a boy had ruined her and on the way back, He gave her a lecture on, you, you got to watch out for boys. They're not good. They'll pretend they love you. He was trying to escape his guilt. So now we have learned that there's a world of difference between how a man loves and how a woman loves. And wait until you're wise and you're mature. And incidentally, we have a very long maturity. Did you know it in the United States? I think we have the longest juvenility in the world. The Jews, for example, had about the age of 13. Today, you are a man. Yesterday, you were a boy. Now you're growing. But we have people going back and forth from juvenility to maturity and crossing and recrossing the line. So wait until you mature in judgment. And finally, you will often hear 
among yourselves, boys and girls talking and saying, I don't believe anymore. I'm an atheist. Or I, I, I just can't believe in God and the like. Do not argue with them. I will give you a rule that will help you very much in life. Never pay very much attention to what people say. Pay attention to why they say it. What are they covering up? I was instructing a stewardess on an international airline. And I got up to the subject of confession and she said, now I'll never go to confession after hearing this instruction. I refuse to become a Catholic. Well, I said, take one more lesson. And then at the end of that instruction, you may discontinue. Well, at the end of the next instruction, she was in a veritable creed. She shrieked, screamed, let me out of here. Now I'll never be a Catholic. I said, my dear girl, there's no proportion whatever between what you have heard and the way you're acting. Have you had an abortion? She said, yes. She finished instructions. I later witnessed the marriage and baptized the baby. Do not pay attention to what people say. Why do they say it? Why was she attacking confession? It was her way of escaping her inner guilt, blaming it onto the sacrament. And when you hear young people say, I'm atheist and so forth, do not argue about their faith. Look into their morals. How are they living? That's the important thing. And hence our blessed Lord said, Blessed are the clean of heart, the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Purity gives us vision. If the window is dirty, the light cannot come in. If our morals are bad, then the faith and the light of God cannot come into us. So keep yourselves clean. Now, you're wonderful young people. And I trust that the Holy Spirit will inspire you to recall some of the things that I've talked to you about today. I've been very frank. And I assume your goodness and that you'll always be good. And for you girls, may I say that there is such a thing as the apostolate of beauty. The apostolate of beauty. Do not be ashamed to think of that. You're young, attractive, but the mere fact that you're young, you're vivacious. Do you realize that when beauty is virtuous, it's far more appealing than anything else? You recognize that I have power, the good Lord has given me the power of word, but he's given to you this other power. And it's more powerful, really, because, as a wise old Greek said, everyone loves beauty. So practice the apostolate of beauty. And as for you young men, life is hard. It's a struggle. But 
the Lord will not be failing in his goodness to you. And now with that, I conclude because I don't want to keep you any longer. And I will finish with a story about a priest who was talking on the 12 minor prophets. There are 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. And he had talked for an hour and 45 minutes and had finished only three. He saw the audience was getting a bit tired. And so he introduced the next one with some degree of histrionics. And he said, and now, and now, where shall I place Habakkuk? Someone got up in the back of the hall and said, he can take my seat. <laughs> You're free now. The Lord love you and bless you and keep you good because you're going to make the church in the next 30 years and we depend on you. Thank you and God love you.